You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Turn now to the Gospel of John, chapter 21. John, chapter 21. When you find your place, let's pray together before we begin. Our Father, we are thankful for your mercy to us. You are great. Your faithfulness to your word is great. We thank you that you have have committed yourself to us, to saving a people for yourself and for the glory of your great name. We thank you that you have done that for us and that you have given us your words that we might know you and we might be brought to a knowledge of the truth and that we might be given the gift of faith to believe the gospel and to believe upon Christ. And we thank you for these things and we pray that as we read your word and study it that we may see your greatness displayed in the glory of your great name, your great love for us and what you demand of us. We thank you for these things and pray your blessing upon this time in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let me give you just a little bit of a preview of what's to come in the weeks ahead. We are nearing the end of John's Gospel. Uh, today we're going to be finishing up what we started looking at last week. And next week, Justin Peters is going to be preaching in my stead. And then after that, we have either one or possibly two more sermons in the Gospel of John. So I say that to you so that you know that the, there is light at the end of the tunnel. We are getting close. Uh, hang, hang in there. Stay with us to the end. Nobody likes a quitter. You've come this far. You might as well persevere all the way to the end of the John's Gospel. Um, we're picking up today where we uh, left off after last week. Um, last week, we kind of went through this, the text dealing with Peter's restoration, uh, that public restoration where he was asked publicly three times, do you love me? And we never really had a chance, though I kind of teased this a little bit, we never had a chance to really work out the implications of that and think upon it. And so today's message is really a working out of the application of that text and giving some more thought to those, to those things that we find in that passage. If I had the brains to preach for an hour and a half and you had the stomach to listen to me preach for an hour and a half, everything that you were about to get would have been tacked on to the end of last week's message. But since I don't have the brains and you don't have the stomach, divided it into two parts, and today we're going to be looking at the application of last week. So with that said, everything that I'm about to say, the theological, textual context and groundwork for all of this was laid last week. We're going to read over the passage, and I'm just going to quickly remind you of what it was that we talked about last week so you know out of which we're drawing today's message. John chapter 21, this is the restoration of Peter. This is after breakfast, after the miraculous catch of fish on the Sea of Galilee. There were seven disciples who were gathered there, and Jesus appeared to them after the resurrection. Verse 15, so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. Now that's the necessary backdrop for our conversation today, which deals with the centrality of love in Christian life and Christian service. Three times the Lord asked Peter, do you love me? Three times Peter confessed, professed his love for Jesus. And three times Jesus said to Peter, tend my sheep or tend my lambs or feed my sheep. 
And so there is this connection between our love for the Lord and the service that we render to others. And we were able to only briefly look at that last week and briefly ask ourselves what the condition of our own love for the Lord is. And today we're going to be examining that in more detail. Love is one of the central characteristics of a truly born again, truly saved individual. There must be the presence of love there. If there is no love present in an individual's life, then there certainly is no life. And by that I mean spiritual life or regenerated divine life that God gives to us. Salvation will result in a love for God and a love for one's neighbor, and consequently in a service to one's neighbor because of that love for God. And we'll lay a little bit of a groundwork, and then we're going to be looking briefly back at those verses that we just read. In today's culture, it's essential that we understand what we mean by love, because the world has a warped understanding of what love means. Um, In today's culture, loving somebody is coupled, unfortunately, with the world's warped understanding of tolerance and toleration. Meaning that any time that you confront somebody with their sin or say that a certain lifestyle is sinful or an abomination or that one is on a wrong path, that one is believing in a false god or is guilty of idolatry, you confront somebody with their sin that is oftentimes deemed unloving. Because love is coupled with tolerance, and by tolerance... Our world and the world system means not just that you put up with people that you disagree with, but in today's world, tolerance means you agree with people you disagree with. Does that make sense? Not only do you agree with them, but you can't express any disagreement. And not only do you have to agree with them, you have to affirm them. So it's not enough just to put up with them and say, I disagree with your theology. I disagree with your lifestyle. I disagree with your conduct, everything you believe and your entire worldview. But I will show you love and I will tolerate you and I will put up with you. That's what tolerance means to put up with somebody. That's what tolerance used to mean, but today it doesn't mean that. Today it means, yeah, your worldview and your culture and your theology is equal to my worldview, my culture and my theology. Your lifestyle and my lifestyle are equal. And not only that, not only do I have to affirm that, but I have to affirm and applaud your depravity or your sin or your lifestyle, whatever it is. That's what tolerance has become. And so anytime you confront somebody with their sin, they say that that is unloving. And of all things, Christians should be loving. And since Christians should be loving, you can't confront anybody with their sin. You see how that goes? That's the world's idea of what love is. But that's not the biblical idea of what love is. Biblical love begins with a love for God. That's above all things. That is before all things. Biblical love can only be understood in terms of having a love for God, the kind of love for God that is demanded by the law. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest of the commandments, or to sum up the commandments, Jesus said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. That is not only the summation of all the commandments, that is what obeying the commandments looks like, but that is also the, the, the description of where love begins. Love must begin with a love for God. If I do not have a love for God, I cannot have a true love for my fellow man. Because if I don't love God rightly, then I can't understand what loving my fellow man or loving my neighbor looks like. Because I will begin to define love on my own terms or the world's terms. And then I will slip into this idea of that that love means I tolerate sin or put up with sin or that I affirm other people's immorality. And if I fall into that trap, it is because I have not allowed love for God to define what true love is. So a love for God, a love for neighbor begins with a love for God. Love for God means that I love his truth and I love his righteousness and I love who he is as he is revealed in Scripture as he exists, love for God means that I have a love for justice and a love for righteousness and a love for the truth that God has revealed and the one who is revealed as the truth that is the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And then I will have, if I have a proper love for God, then I will have a proper love for my neighbor and other people. So loving God is, is first and foremost. That's the, the fundamental requirement of the law. And by the way, the violation of all of the Ten Commandments is the lack of loving God. If I, and this, this is where we fall down, true, is it not? I mean, if, if, if we could just say we had that one commandment to live by. Let's, for the sake of argument, get rid of the other ten. Let's get rid of all the other Old Testament law. If we just had this commandment to love the Lord our God with all our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength, how many people here have succeeded in keeping that commandment your entire life? Nobody here has. Right? So all of the violation of all of the other Ten Commandments are due to the fact that I do not love God as I should love God. And every time I sin and every time you sin, it is an admission that we do not love God perfectly and that we do not love God fully. Because every sin which is a violation of His commandment is an expression of our lack of love for God. Because we don't love truth and we don't love righteousness and we don't love His Word as we should. So if I make a graven image, it's because I don't love God as I should love God. If I fail to keep the Sabbath, it's because I don't love God as I should love God. If I violate my neighbor and my, my expression of my lack of love for my neighbor in coveting what he has or in taking his wife in adultery or in stealing from him or in lying uh, to my neighbor, all of those things are expressions of my lack of love for my neighbor, which really is a result of my lack of love for God. So that's where love begins. It begins by loving God as we should. And if we love God as we should, then we can understand how God defines love and what true love is so that then I can turn around and love my neighbor as myself. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3, If anyone loves God, he is known by him. Now, this is the central characteristic of a Christian. Listen to these passages. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. You hear that? If you don't love the Lord, you're accursed. This, love is not ancillary. It's not secondary. This is not optional. It's not that I get saved and then I'm, and then I'm going to start having a love for God maybe at some point down, down, the, down the road. If I lack a love for God, I am an accursed individual. Love for God is the fundamental characteristic of a true believer. James chapter 1, verse 12, Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Who gets the crown of life? Those who love the Lord. James 2, verse 5, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? Who gets the kingdom? Those who love God. These are the things that God has promised to those who love Him. Those who do not love Him are under a curse. Those who love Him are loved by Him, and they are His. And, and it is not our love of God that elicits His love for us. God didn't look down through time and see who it was that would willfully, cheerfully, of their own volition and as an expression of their own heart, love Him, and then love us in return for that. He loved us before we ever loved Him. We only love Him because He first loved us. That's First John Chapter 4, I think it's verse 19. We love Him because He first loved us. When did He love us? Before the foundation of the world. He set His affection on us. He called us to be His own. He made us His own and His sheep. And He knew us beforehand. That is what foreknowledge is. It is knowing us beforehand. And so because God has loved us, we love Him. And the mark and characteristic of a true Christian is that He loves God. And then out of that love for God, that is out, it is that out of which we love our neighbor. And this is the character and this is the conduct of a true Christian, which is why Paul says we should pursue love. This is why Paul says if, if I can give my body to be burned and I speak with the tongue of men and angels, but I have not love, what am I? Sounding cymbal or resounding bells, just ringing and clanging and lots of noise, but nothing of substance. Now salvation, it is the salvation that God gives to us that initiates this love and starts this love. 
God does not save us because we loved him. And so he desired to save us because we loved him. We love God because he saved us unto a love for himself. He loved us and gave his son for us while we were yet his enemies. While we were hostile in mind and hostile in our deeds and in our works against God. And we were at war against him and in rebellion to him. And when we hated him and we were estranged from him, he sent his love to be the uh, his son to be the propitiation for us because of his great love for us. So it is God's love for us that has saved us. And then in salvation, we come face to face with the God who is that he is righteous and holy and just. And in salvation, I come to know who God is as he is in truth. And in saving me, he creates in me a new heart and a new mind with new affections and a new will and, uh, and, and new desires so that now I long to serve him and I love him because salvation has taken place. I don't begin to truly love God prior to salvation. I cannot. I cannot. That's what depravity means. That's what being lost means. That we are devoid of that fundamental requirement of the law. So I can't love God prior to salvation. I am unable to do so. I have to have a regenerated heart, a new heart, which has to come from Him. And so He gives the new heart and the new affections. And what is the very first expression of that regenerated heart? It is a love that is directed to God. And because of that, then, to one's neighbor. You see this in the Apostle Paul, do you not? Did he have a love for God before he got saved? He didn't. He had a love for orthodoxy. He had quite a zeal, but he didn't have really a love for God. And then when he came face to face with Christ and realized who God is and what God had done for him, he got saved. And what did the Apostle Paul immediately do? He stopped killing Christians and started living with and serving and preaching the gospel and serving other Christians. Now, that is the expression of salvation. Salvation is what brings that. So now we come back to our text in John chapter 21, verse 15. Three times the Lord asked Peter, do you love me? And we saw last week that two of those times the Lord used the Greek word agape. There are distinctions in Greek terms for love that our English language does not have room to express. When I say I love the 49ers, I love pizza, and I love my wife, and I love God, I'm using the same word love for all of those. But hopefully all of you understand that my love for the 49ers is nothing like my love for my wife. Though they are close, they are not equal. I I do love my wife more than I love my team. And sometimes far, far more than I love my team because they're having a bad season. So in, in our English language, we have one word for love, but in Greek they have different words that express different shades of, of affection, the different kinds of affection. So when the Lord asked Peter the first time, do you love me? He used the word agape, which meant a sacrificial, uh, completely committed, one directional love that would give everything for that. And Peter responded with, Lord, you know that I phileo you, which was a different kind of love. It was a brotherly affection, a kind affection, a, a warmness, a warm affection, yes, but the type of love that, that you would use to describe not your love for your wife, hopefully, but your love for a brother in Christ or a good friend or one that you serve with. So you have a kind affection for them. And the second time the Lord asked Peter, do you love me? He asked the same question. Do you have agape for me, Peter? Do you love me sacrificially in a, in a fully committed way? And Peter said, Lord, you know that I phileo you. I have that kind of affection for you. And the third time, the Lord dropped it right down to Peter's level and asked him the question in such a way as to, as to question whether or not Peter even had that kind of love for him. Peter, do you fillet on me? Do you really even have a kind, brotherly affection for me? And Peter was grieved that the Lord had asked him that three times because he had denied the Lord three times. And Peter knew exactly what the Lord was getting at. And so then Peter came back and said, you know all things, you know that I fillet on you. And Peter never went up to the agape love. But Peter would eventually lay down his life for the Lord, and his phileo love would become an agape love over the course of his ministry. But on that day on the seashore, the, the Apostle Peter 
confessed his love for Jesus, and it was a phileo love. So three times the Lord asked Peter, three times Peter confessed, and three times the Lord told Peter, if you love me, then you will tend my sheep, you will shepherd my sheep, or tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, and tend my sheep. To tend, to care for uh, his sheep. And it is Christ's sheep that Peter was called to shepherd. And the Lord was saying to Peter, you're not going to be a fisherman, you're going to be a shepherd. Meaning that Peter would be an elder in the church. He would function in that capacity as, a, as an overseer, uh, an elder, one who would shepherd the sheep of God. And he would have quite a wide and extensive ministry as a result of that. So what do we learn about love then from this passage and from Jesus' question to Peter? Let's begin with this. The first thing that we learn is the, of the centrality of our love for God in Christian service. It is central. And this is why Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Three times. Now, that's a very simple question, isn't it? It's a very simple question. Even a child, even a very small child, before they can even utter the word love, can express love and knows what that love is. A child knows what love is and has a love for its parents or its siblings or the dog or it has been reported in some cases, though I've never seen it with my own eyes, even a cat can be loved by a child. But that child, before it is even able to walk, will be able to express love and to know love and experience love. And it knows that before it can even use the word love. It is the most fundamental, foundational, simple of human emotions to to love something. A child knows that. Jesus didn't ask Peter, do you respect me or do you revere me? But do you love me? Because that is where it must begin. And it could have been a much more complex question. Um, even if I am aware of a lot, unaware of a lot of other graces in my life, I can be at least aware of this, whether or not I have a love for Christ. My own self-examination can reveal that to me. Now, if you asked me or if Jesus had asked Peter, Peter, are you humble? What is the measure of that? That's a very difficult question, isn't it? Because the minute you think you're humble or you think you have achieved humility, it suddenly is right outside of your grasp. Sometimes I think I'm humble if I'm around certain individuals. I think, wow, my humility would make Moses jealous. And then I'm around somebody else and I think, man, I'm not humble at all. Or what if Jesus had asked Peter, are you wise? Ask yourself that question. Examine yourself on those terms. Are you wise? Do you have biblical wisdom? How do you answer that? How do you know that? I'm around some people. Make me think that I'm a fool. I have no ability to apply biblical truth. Other times I'm around other people that I think, Solomon ain't got nothing on me. I'm far more wise than this fool. But how do we know that? How can we measure that? How about my motives? Do I really know if I'm serving the Lord out of a pure motive when I stand up here and preach or when I do something to serve somebody else? That's difficult. The heart is deceitfully wicked and desperately wicked above all things. It lies to me about even the motives of my own heart. I don't even know if they're pure all the time. And I can't know that. So I can't examine my motives. Peter wasn't asked to examine his motives. He was asked to examine himself about the most simple of things. Do you love me? Now that I can know. I may not be able to know the depths of my love. I may not be able to know the extent of my love. I may not even be able to know at this point if my love would endure through persecution and if my love would endure through immense suffering because things are going well right now. I may not be able to say any of that with absolute certainty from my perspective, but I can know if there is a love for Christ that is there. I can't know if I'm humble. I can't know if there's really genuine wisdom, how learned I am, how spiritually gifted I am. All of those graces and all of those things can remain uncertainties to a great extent, but I can be aware of at least whether I have a love for Jesus or not. So it's a very simple question, but it's also a searching question because the Lord didn't ask Peter, do you revere me? Do you admire me? Do you think highly of me? 
Because I can think highly of Christ and have no love for him whatsoever. I can revere him and admire him, and many people in the world do, but I can be devoid of true and genuine love for Christ. And Jesus didn't ask Peter, what have you done for me? Are you serving me? Are you doing all the doings? As if that were the only and sole evidence of his love, because we can be very active serving the Lord and sacrificing and giving of our time, talents, and treasure and do all of that without any love whatsoever. So it's a very searching question. J.C. Ryle wisely said this, Let us take heed that there is some feeling in our religion. Knowledge, orthodoxy, correct views, regular use of forms, a respectable moral life, all of these do not make a true Christian. There must be some personal feeling toward Christ. End quote. See, I can be doctrinally sound and be doctrinally sound without any love for Jesus whatsoever. And have all my doctrine tied up in a nice, neat bow and have it airtight and have it be orthodox and solid, rock solid, and be able to defend it. And yet have true and genuine love for Christ be completely absent from that equation. I could love truth without loving God, but I cannot love God without loving truth. Because if I truly love God, I'm loving the one who is the truth, who has revealed truth, who is the true and living God, and who is himself the standard of truth. So if I love God, there will be a love for truth in my heart. But I can love truth without loving God. Case in point, the Pharisees. Very orthodox. Very orthodox. And they prided themselves on the truth. You see, I can love truth because I love winning an argument. And when I have truth and I use truth, truth is always on my side. And I can enjoy taking truth and using it as a cudgel to bludgeon people into submission and do so all for the advancement of my own pride and ego because I like being right. And I can love truth because I grew up in an environment where the truth was preached and the truth was honored. And I like fitting in with people who love the truth. And so I can love truth without there being any genuine love for the Lord in my heart at all. That was that would describe the Pharisees. Orthodox in their theology for the most part. But that orthodoxy and that love for truth and that commitment to what they believed was true, what was revealed is true, that commitment turned into, uh, seeded into a self-righteousness and a pride and an arrogance. So, must there be a love for God? Or must there be, if there is a love for God, there will be a love for truth. And if I have a love for truth, then I have to ask myself, is there honestly, genuinely a love for God in the midst of that love for truth? Now, this is the part of the sermon where... I could jump right into the middle of our collective chest with a whole heaping load of guilt. Now you say, Jim, you haven't done that yet? I mean, really, what do you call the last 20 minutes? Well, it hasn't been jumping into our collective chest with a heap of guilt. I could bring up the fact that you and I really do not love the Lord perfectly, nor do we love the Lord fully. We don't love the Lord enough, do we? Every sin that I have committed this morning before I got up here, every sin that you have committed this morning is a plain admission that we do not love the Lord as well as we should or as fully as we should. And furthermore, I don't always feel love for God. And I'm not always aware of my love for God as I should be. When I am changing the oil or when I'm working in the yard or when you're at work and you're crunching numbers and you're typing up a memo and you're in a business meeting or you're making dinner for your kids or or you're changing the front end on your vehicle or doing a hundred things that we do each and every day, there are moments in that day, maybe long, long chunks of that day, when we are not aware of our love for God. But the truth is that if we stopped ourselves and we, in that moment, asked ourselves this question, do I have a love for God? 
we'd have to confess, if you're a believer, yes, I do have a love for God. Was I thinking of it at that moment before I was asked? No, I wasn't. Do I, do I always feel the same enraptured sense of love for God that I do when I am worshiping or when I am observing a sunset or sitting out in front of that sunset, reading Scripture and thinking about the cross? I may feel enraptured in my sense of love for God. Is that the same all of the time? It's not, right? So I don't love God fully as I should. I'm growing in my love for God, and I certainly don't love God perfectly or I would never sin. You know what I'm looking forward to about heaven? The ability to sit down and talk to you about football and at the same time be consciously aware of all times of the Lord's presence and his love for me and my love for him without any inclination to ever at any moment ever do any, ever do otherwise. Without any inclination to not have a conscious, present awareness of who Christ is and what he has done and my love for him and his love for me. That will be heaven. The ability to do that, to do every, have everything that we do motivated by that love, to love perfectly and constantly and fully and without any error or diminishment whatsoever, and yet to enjoy each other and all of the glories of God's new creation. That's what I'm looking forward to about heaven. So, do we love God fully? No, we do not. Do we love God perfectly? No, we do not. But as the people of God, this is where the gospel comes in. I do not love God fully. I do not love Him perfectly. I do love Him. I'm aware of that, and I'm growing in that love. But, The security of our salvation does not rest upon the perfection of our love for him. It rests upon the perfection of his love for us. It is because he loves us fully and perfectly and unendingly that our salvation is secure. That he sent his son to be the propitiation and the satisfaction for our sin so that we can have eternal life and that he would redeem us. All of that is based upon his perfect love for me and not my perfect love for him. Because if my salvation depended upon my perfect love for him, how far would I get? Not, not even at the moment of my salvation, when the love of God was shed abroad in my heart, and there was an enraptured sense of love and affection for Christ because of what he has done, not even at that moment, or at any moment in your life or my life, when our love for the Lord has been at its fever pitch at its greatest, was it ever what it should be, or even close to what it should be. Because he is worthy of infinite love, and he is worthy of perfect love. So though we can feel guilty sometimes because our love for God is not what it should be, we always have to come back to the gospel. What does the gospel say? That we love him because he first loved us. And yes, we fail, but that's why as Christians we still need the gospel. And to remind ourselves of the gospel. That we are righteous because he has made us righteous and we are loved because he has loved us. And yes, our love for him is a response to that, is a response to the gospel. It is the result of our salvation, but it surely is not what our salvation depends upon. How do we get more love for Christ if we don't have adequate love for Christ? J.C. Ryle has some wise words on this. He writes this, What, after all, is the great secret of loving Christ? Now, this is good. This is worth listening to. Nothing else may have been up to this point, but this is, It is an inward sense of having received from Him pardon and forgiveness of sins. Those love much who feel much forgiven. He that has come to Christ with his sins and tasted the blessedness of free and full absolution, he is the man whose heart will be full of love towards the Savior. The more we realize that Christ has suffered for us and paid our debt to God, and that we are washed and justified through his blood, the more we shall love him for having loved us and given himself for us. Our knowledge of doctrines may be defective. Our ability to defend our views in argument may be small, but we cannot be prevented feeling. And our feeling will be like that of the Apostle Peter. Thou, Lord, who knowest all things, thou knowest my heart, and thou knowest that I love thee. 
And what J.C. Ryle is saying is this, that if you want to increase in your love for Christ, you must meditate upon the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done. Those who are fully aware of what he has done will increase in their love for him. When I'm changing a diaper, I'm not thinking of the love of God. When I'm sitting with my open Bible, reading about the passion of Christ, or my justification in Romans chapter 5, then I am thinking about the love of God for me in Christ Jesus. And the more time I spend applying the means of grace and enjoying the means of grace and exposing myself to the truth of Scripture and the reality of God's love and meditating and fixing my mind on heavenly things and thinking on those things, the more will increase my love for the Savior. As I seek to obey Him and I seek to meditate upon what He has done. So we draw near to God, as James says in James 4, verse 8, and He will draw near to us. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That is, we mortify sin. We draw near to God. That will increase our love for God. Exposure to the Word of God will increase our love for God. Fixing our mind on heavenly things, thinking much on the Gospel and the Atonement and all that has been wrought by the Lord Jesus for our sake, that will increase our love for God. Now, there's a certain danger in, in evaluating our feelings of love for the Lord, is there not? Now, you might say, Jim, I have been sitting here for years and I've heard you speak a lot about love and these things, but I've never heard you speak so much about feelings as you are today. What are you doing focusing on feelings? And there is a certain danger, even in evaluating our love for the Lord, that we might get caught up in the danger that is, that is using our feelings to, as, as, a, as a benchmark, as an evaluation for our love for Christ. I didn't ask you how much you feel a love for Christ, but do you love Him? Those are two different things. We, we cannot use our feelings as the benchmark or the, the, the standard of evaluating because feelings fluctuate with circumstances. Right? You, you go through a season of life and your feelings wax and wane in that season of life. Sometimes we go through dry spells. Sometimes there, there are wet spells and, and, and times when we feel refreshment from the Lord. We can't evaluate all the time our love for the Lord based upon our feelings because feelings change with circumstances. And feelings fluctuate and feelings are unreliable, completely unreliable. And have you ever seen somebody or known somebody, I'm not asking you to point fingers in this congregation, but who stands up on a Sunday morning with their hands raised and they're singing at the top of their voice and their tears are streaming down their face on Sunday morning as they worship the Lord and they are enraptured in that feeling of love and they have that. And then Sunday afternoon they go out and they commit the most abominable sin you can possibly imagine. Indulging the flesh and the desires of the flesh and disobeying the Lord Jesus Christ and living in the most selfish and profane manner you can possibly imagine. Have you known such people? What does the feelings do for them in that case? Absolutely nothing. So the question is not, do I feel at this moment as if I love, but is there in my heart as a result of regeneration a love for God that loves Him for who He is and how He has revealed Himself in Scripture? A love that loves God and then works itself out in obedience to God through service to other people. And this is where we come to what is then genuine love in terms of loving God. It is obedience. Jesus said to the disciples on the night before he was betrayed, on the night he was betrayed before he was crucified, he said to them, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you will obey me. He repeated that to them. Obedience is the test of my love for him. Not my feelings, not whether I'm aware of an enraptured sense of, of hyper-emotional love in any given state or any given circumstances, but do I love him because I surrender myself to him and obey him? Obedience is the mark of my love. That is the test of love. Serving other people. So I can give my time and my talents and my treasure to the Lord and do all kinds of things without loving Him. That's true. But I cannot love Him without doing those things. And that is why Jesus said to Peter, 
If you love me, you will tend my lambs. If you love me, you will shepherd my sheep. If you love me, you will tend my sheep. Peter, if you love Jesus, you will use your time and talents in serving other people. Loving others by way of service is the expression of our love for God. So look at the text in verse 15. So when he had finished breaking uh, breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Lest, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my lambs. That's what Peter was being called to. And now three times in that passage, Peter was called to tend Christ's lambs. Now that means basically that Peter would be called to, to the role of a shepherd, the role of an elder, an overseer. Uh, these are the same function, the same office in Scripture, an elder or pastor. It is the function of caring for others and tending others. And you say, well, then if, if, the, if the test for loving the Lord is that I'm a shepherd or an elder, I'm not an elder or a shepherd. So therefore, I, how can I possibly express my love for the Lord? Well, the, the principle, the application there is specific to Peter, but the principle for us is this. This is Peter's expression of love for his Lord, that he would obey Christ in being a fisher of men, being a leader in the church, in shepherding and leading and protecting and guiding and feeding other people. That was Peter's expression of his love for the Lord. But you and I have individual and specific and different expressions. Just because you're not an elder doesn't mean you can't show your love for the Lord. So Peter's, uh, Peter's advice, which we read in 1 Peter chapter 4 at the beginning of the service, Peter, was, Peter said this, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment, sober in spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another. Hear that? Keep fervent in your love for one another. He's not writing to other elders specifically and only. He is writing to all of us as Christians. Be fervent in your love for one another because love covers the multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another. That's a spiritual gift. How do you serve other people? By being hospitable. And do so without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So Peter says we are to be fervent in our love for one another. And if our, our, our love is fervent toward one another, then we will employ whatever spiritual gift God has given to us in serving others. And then Peter gives two categories of gifts, speaking gifts and serving gifts. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Speaking gifts and serving gifts. Peter had a speaking gift. He spoke, and so he spoke as one who spoke the oracles of God in counseling, in preaching, in teaching, and in, in comforting and exhorting and encouraging other people. Some of us have serving gifts. We do things for the Lord. We do things to serve other people. Speaking gifts and serving gifts. What does it look like when we are fervent in our love for one another? Those who have various gifts, use them in serving one another to the glory of God. That's real simple and straightforward. We love God, we serve other people. That's what it boils down to. Peter, do you love me? Yes, serve others. Peter, do you love me? Yes, serve others. Peter, do you love me? Yes, serve others. That's pretty clear, isn't it? We love one another, we serve one another. Now, I'm not, I don't need to whip this church into a frenzy over this issue because... This church is one of the most servant-hearted bodies of Christians that I have ever been around. But this is a good reminder for us that our love for the Lord will manifest itself in a service to other people. J.C. Ryle said this, Usefulness to others is the grand test of love and working for Christ, the great proof of really loving Christ. It is not loud talk and high profession. It is not even impetuous, spasmodic zeal and readiness to draw the sword and fight. It is steady, patient, laborious effort to do good to Christ's sheep scattered throughout this sinful world, which is the best evidence of being a true-hearted disciple. That's why Peter said to the elders in 1 Peter chapter 5, I exhort you as elders among you as a fellow elder, 
to serve the flock, not out of compulsion, but voluntarily, offering yourself not for sordid gain, but in loving and being an example to one another. That was the commission call that Peter was given. And Peter got that, and he understood that. If I love the Lord, I will love my neighbor. If I love my neighbor, I will serve my neighbor to the glory of my God. That's the message of the passage. So do you love Christ? Not do you love him perfectly. Not do you at all times feel enraptured with his love. Not do you love him fully and without error. But is there in your heart love for the Lord Jesus Christ? If there is no life, a love, there is no life. Love is the fundamental character quality of a Christian. It will be present. If you are a believer, there will be love for your God. There will be love for other people. Will it be perfect? It won't be perfect. But the gospel says that that love will be there. Because our love to him is an expression of his love for us. Our love to him and our service to others is an expression of ultimately a love for God who is the truth and who served others by giving himself as a sacrifice to pay for the ransom price for sinners who would believe upon him. Let's pray. Our Father, you have been so gracious and kind to us to demonstrate what true love is and to call us to that love. And we can do much without there being love, but we cannot love much without doing for others what you have called us to do. So we pray that you would give us grace to see that, to express our love for others in service to you and to others. Thank you for giving us spiritual gifts whereby we may serve one another and glorify you, our great God. You are worthy of all of our love that we can give and so much more. And having eternity to express our love and be aware of that love and grow in that love from, from day to day would never be enough to express to you the debt of gratitude that we owe and the debt of love that we owe for what you have done for us in redeeming us from the pit and sending your son to die for us. Thank you for these things. And we pray that you would encourage our hearts in these truths. Help us to love and express that love to others. You are our God and it is our joy to confess that and to love you as our God and our King. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.